Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures... All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah. I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can I begin? Then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So <sighs> thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, 
CCC SLP CLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, everybody, we are excited because today's guest is none other than basically the SLP guru on sensory. We have the one and only Jesse Ginsberg, MSCCC SLP, a sensory integration trained speech language pathologist, CEO of Pediatric Therapy Playhouse, and founder of the internationally acclaimed Inside Out Sensory Certificate Program. Also, she is a full-time mama and wife and goals and joy and has just the most enthusiastic and, as Erin would say, authentic Instagram presence, and it brings us joy. And Erin, like, orchestrated today happening. So, Erin, I'm going to pass the mic to you, and thank you, thank you, thank you again. Well, I did attend Jesse's course at ASHA on the floor because <laughs> it was A, in like the basement of the hotel, the, one of the hardest rooms to find. And I'm not kidding. We were all squished in there like a bunch of sardines because everyone wanted to take her course. And I thoroughly enjoy following her. I say to a lot of my coworkers all the time that OTs don't own sensory but I understand that we don't get that in our curriculum. So I'm very grateful that there is a resource for SLPs to be able to absorb and digest this information because as Michelle and I talk about, you have to be regulated to learn language. So we are so happy to have Jesse on today to talk more about that. So you can learn more about her course, learn more about some strategies that you could probably implement tomorrow. So Jesse, we're happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And that's awesome that you were at ASHA. 
Yeah, it was, it was great. I walked in, I was like, oh, I'm going to be sitting on the floor today. Okay. <laughs> I like sitting on the floor, so that's okay. It's so funny because I was on a different time zone than I'm used to. So I had to get up at like four in the, four in the morning. Oh, my and it was time. 8 a.m. Yes, she was also yeah. an 8 a.m. course. Mm-hmm. To be there and I looked exhausted as if having three kids under five, I don't look tired enough. Now it was me on half the amount of sleep I'm used to. And I was like, oh, no one's going to go anyway. It's at 8 a.m. They should ask people that. Where like they sh- That's really unfair to them to do that to you. <laughs> Thank you. Erin <laughs> was laughing because we went out the night before and she was like, all right, now I know married women away from their children are going to tie one on at Asha. She was like, but I have to go to this class at eight. So we have to behave. And I was like, word. <laughs> so, that, was, that was fun. Oh, okay. So tell us, how did you become a speech pathologist? Because we all love everybody's backstory. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like that question just ties into all the reasons I'm here to talk. But I had graduated college, like many college graduates had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. But I did have this major in communicative disorders, wasn't sold on it. But I had enough hours to get my SLPA, my assistant license. So I just applied for that and just started sending resumes all over Los Angeles, where I live. And I got one interview out of the many, many I sent out. And it honestly just feels like all the cards fell into place. I went to that interview. She said, you'd also be doing floor time therapy here. And I know, you know, I know, Erin, you're doing a lot of work in that now. Mm-hmm. And that she said, you know what floor time is, right? We would also have you do floor time. And I'm just smiling and nodding. <laughs> No idea, never heard of it. Can't be that hard. Doesn't sound that complicated. So then I accept the job on the spot because I didn't know that it wasn't normal to do that. (laughs) And I accept it, go home, Google, what is floor time? I had no idea it was its own therapy approach. So I ended up getting trained in floor time at that clinic. And the my supervisor was a mentee of Dr. Greenspan right before he this was right before he passed away and yeah so i got this training and then i ended up at going to grad school moving to washington dc where i then interviewed at the floor time center with Jake Greenspan his son who has pretty much you know taken over that part of greenspan floor time and i had an offer at his clinic. And then I had an offer at just another standard speech clinic where I would have a little bit of everything. And I declined his offer because <laughs> I was scared. I thought this is going to be too hard. I don't know enough. I'm not going to be able to do as good of a job here working with only autistic kids. I was just so scared of the idea. And that, you know, didn't stop <laughs> anything as fate will have it, I guess you could say. But Jake and I stayed in close contact. And even the following year, we were at ASHA presenting together because I had just realized how significant floor time was. And I was just completely floored that more SLPs didn't know about it, or they thought that floor time was a different, or that it had to be a different therapy. And I thought SLPs need to know these strategies so they can implement them in their speech sessions. We've done a slew of recordings between 
Play Spark and oh, Aaron, who is um, Meg, Meg Proctor? Proctor. Mm-hmm. Meg Proctor and Play Spark and a couple of other ones. And with Aaron, I, I laugh and joke. I am on the bandwagon, but um, you have three children. You know how expensive all of their things are. <laughs> so like, it is coming. <laughs> oh, okay, let me give you my thought on this real quick. So. I've been a practitioner for years, years, and years, and I spent 18 months working as clinic director and assistant clinical professor, clinical assistant professor, teaching the clinic class. And what I found was that universities are so stretched to teach the ASHA Big Nine to demonstrate competency in what they call the CASA standards, the knowledge and skills acquisition standards, that how to really implement therapy doesn't always get taught, mm-hmm. much less how to engage in interprofessional practice with our colleagues is not taught, like in an academic setting. That is really on the external clinical supervisor. So if you're listening and you are a external clinical supervisor or a clinical educator at a university or college, please, 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 please model these. Please, 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 please have your students engage in this because For the most part, they're not getting that in their academic coursework. So while I was there, I had assignments and it was to read the Addisync Child, to read um, some of the sensory processing disorder books, um, play, the book play that Aaron loves, because I needed to talk about why we have to get the child in a set state not set state, but like why they have to be ready to learn because language is, it's like high level. (laughs) Yeah. It's the hardest thing we ask them to do. And it blows my mind how much the concept of sensory processing, sensory regulation is not covered. So we have to this day, students graduating that don't know what this is. And nor do they understand why it's important. I was so, just recently lecturing and I lecture at a lot of, you know, I get there's so much to teach. There's so little time in yes. school, you know, yes. so I love when schools reach out to me to just come in and do a guest lecture. I'm, I'm speaking at UCLA tomorrow. I speak to them every year, but I just spoke at um, a school and to grad level students. <laughs> I won't even say where it was. And I said, okay, how many of you know what sensory processing is? And probably three people out of 50 raised their hands. Doesn't it break your heart? And I was like, I think I said, dear Lord, like out loud because I was like, (laughs) oh God, okay, now whatever I planned, I cannot go into because we need to go back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's why, that's why we're here. And that's why... Basically, that's one of the big impetus behind First Bite is to bring it to, because this is what we need and we want to advocate here. So take it away. Mike, drop us all. Talk to us about what is sensory processing, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about how this became, how sensory became relevant in my life. And I think it was kind of a very slow, almost oh my gosh, what's that word? Like simmering eventually led to a a boil. But I told this story recently, really, you know, briefly on Instagram. But when I was a floor time therapist, I had this little boy, he was three and autistic. He was 
just a ball of energy. He'd run into the clinic. He'd run in and out of people's therapy rooms. I was just chasing him around the whole time. And I should mention that our floor time sessions were three hours long. I think I talked about this boy at ASHA. And it was just session after session, me thinking like, what am I doing? I am a failure. I am a horrible therapist. Nothing is happening. I'm basically just here watching him. Nothing that I'm trying is working. And there was one day where he climbed up on my little mini kids table and I had him jump off into my arms and he just, we did that over and over and he's laughing. And then even eventually he starts telling me down and I had just never seen him so engaged and communicative ever. And I realized that was just like the seed of it how that movement really helped him get regulated, but not just regulated, but, you know, motivated because it was so fun for him. And I got in a lot of trouble for that because my supervisors (laughs) did not enjoy having a child jump off a table. They felt it was a liability, blah, blah, blah. I can relate as a clinic owner, but, you know, still it was like, But look at what we got out of him, you know, look at how connected and engaged and beautiful this interaction in this moment was. And I got to collaborate a lot with OTs in this job, which, you know, was so incredible. And we would do co-treats where our kids would be on the swing and we would be targeting language while keeping them regulated. And that was what my grad school essay was about, actually, when I applied was how sensory processing and how being able to get kids regulated, you know, affected their ability to use language. But yeah, I mean, I think that I just learned it was really, it's just one of those things where you think about it in theory, it makes sense. You read about it, it makes sense. You read about the neurology of the brain. And, you know, like you guys were talking about, language is a higher level cognitive process. You know, when kids aren't regulated, their body is essentially fighting to protect them, to keep them alive in survival mode. You know, you guys work with a lot of medically fragile kids when they're in a state of, you know, fight or flight. This is not the time that they are. It's best to work on their language. Yeah. I have a slew of freeze right now. Like right now on my caseload, like I, yes, fight or flight, but I have a couple going through just freeze where they literally, if there's one change in the environment, like we have a group session with three OTs and two SLPs and my grad intern. So there's like six of us in this very large, spacious gym and we're doing child-led therapy. um, And we have, it's like a, it's the coolest jungle gym with like hammocks and rope swings and like all sorts of stuff. Right. And we're, we've got AAC throughout and we're modeling and we're exploring. And if one little friend, if he hears a scream, like a happy scream, like somebody like, yeah, like that's, that's all it takes. He just freezes in his tracks and the OTs are quick to get him back to where he needs. But my grad student and And to some extent myself, because this is not my strong suit, right? It's we freeze in response to his freeze. And we're like, oh, we know we're not regulated. We know that was too large of a a sound and we were overstimulated. But I, 
I recognize it, but I feel ill-equipped to have the tools to address it. And I don't know if you've heard of faulty neuroception, but that could be mm-hmm. what's happening there. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, yeah, when kids are, it's almost like their brain setting off an alarm saying you're not safe in an environment where they are very secure. But, you know, because of past history or past trauma or whatever it may be, their brain is telling them, you know, you're not safe and then shut down. And it's a whole other, you know, beast you're dealing with is just trying to bring that child back to a place where they feel safe and secure. That's literally what we say because he scripts. So we model that scared me, but I am safe. I am loved. And, and then he, and he says, we call it his mantra and he does his little mantra and then he smiles really big and then he bolts to the next activity to go play and run. So that's what Dr. Porges talks about, Michelle, on the polyvagal theory, that neuroception. And it, and I I explain it to some of the like the students I work with and some clinicians that I work with and that when you work in early intervention and you have OT and PT, a lot of times those sessions look very similar because you're working on these foundational skills for developing both gross motor and fine motor, but they ha- the foundation needs to be very strong for those higher level skills to develop. And so when I think a lot of SLPs feel like, oh, well, OT, no sensory, like they can help them regulate and then I can work on language, but you need that strong foundation and you need to understand sensory integration to be able to help them get regulated because it's how we experience the world. And so I do have times where my session and the OT session do look very similar and we implement similar things that the other one is working on, but that's because we're creating that foundation for connection and relationship. And it, when I thought about it that way, it like made so much more sense and floor time helped with that a lot as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, you said that you say OTs don't own sensory. Which is funny because I feel like there's definitely times where I get some slack for talking about sensory, um, even though I have done a very, have spent a very long time in school studying it, getting the same certificate that is available to OTs. But, you know, we use sensory for different reasons. And you know, this program or sort of certificate that I have in sensory integration, you know, sensory integration as a therapy pr- approach is meant to change a child's sensory processing over time. You know, that's the goal is to get in there and really, you know, increase the thresholds for certain types of sensory input and help a child remain regulated for longer periods of time. But when I teach SLPs about sensory processing and sensory strategies, what my focus is, is what can we do right now to bring a kid to a regulated state so that we can have more effective speech sessions? Yes. I I, I just have to ask, how much pushback do you get? You know, it's less now. I think for a long time I was talking about sensory, but I wasn't using my credentials. So I think that the more I say that I'm sensory integration trained, the less pushback I get. But also I have incredible people on my team helping me collaborate. You know, I have a program, a sensory certificate for SLPs. And one of our guest lectures is Winnie Dunn, who is the author mm-hmm. of the sensory profile. 
And she is like the queen in my eyes. <laughs> Sensory. <laughs> awesome. So, and we, yeah, we are collaborating right now, actually, by this time, maybe it will be out, but we're collaborating right now on an article together. So, you know, the more I think I put out there and articles, the less pushback I get. But I always try to say, you know, we're not trying to replace an OT. That is, do do kids need OT? Absolutely, 100%. And doing my sensory integration training is what made me realize the difference. You know, you think about how sensory affects things like activities of daily living, handwriting. You know, if a child has poor tactile perception, they may not know how how like firmly to grip a pencil. And if they have poor proprioceptive modulation, they might not know how hard to push the pencil on the paper. You know, that's not stuff that is necessarily relevant to us as SLPs. We want to know how can we get this child regulated so that they can communicate more efficiently? Ma'am, you are inspirational because it is, it is hard to, when you first voice a, hey, I've identified a problem, but here's a solution and here's how you do it. The first time you bring it up, it can feel like you're shouting into a, a gale, right? And then when you have a team and you forge relationships and you see it shifting, that's mm. one of my favorite quotes is you can either change the world or you can be liked by everyone, but you can't have both. Yep. Yeah. Oh, we learned. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I know that what we're doing is making a difference. I see testimonials, you know, I have people sending me messages every day. I had someone just yet last night send me a message about how she is in private practice and she just booked a new client because her client found out that she'd taken my program and instantly wanted to see her. And she's been going to his IEP meeting and advocating on his behalf and, you know, this really heartwarming message. So it's really, you know, it's, we, we do what we do because we believe in it. Next Asha, I am buying you a thank you drink. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So can you talk to us about for the basic, for the clinician that's just starting out, can you describe some of the signs and symptoms of sensory processing and then how we can go about implementing sensory strategies to address that? Yeah, I think I almost kind of giggle in my head every time I say sensory activities because every activity is a sensory activity, right? Every activity has different sensory inputs, whether that's sound that's involved. Obviously, if we're looking at something, we're getting visual input. So there's just so much to think about in terms of we know the, you know, sight, sound, smell, taste, hearing, the five basic senses. And then we have the senses that are definitely lesser known, which is one is interoception, which is our awareness of our internal organs, things like knowing if we have to go to the bathroom, if we're hungry, things like that. And then we have our vestibular system, which is our processing of movement. And for me, I always got, I don't know if confused right right words, but I feel like it was like a fake it till you make it conversation with parents because sometimes talking about vestibular input and then the last one, proprioceptive, can be so hard to describe. And with proprioceptive, I used to just like say, yeah, proprioceptive, rah, 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 body awareness. <laughs> <rah."> <laughs> 
But when you learn the difference, it, vestibular system, our receptors for that are in our in our inner ear. So any type of head movement, whether we're going forward, backward, upside down, any kind of movement is going to activate that sense. Whereas our proprioceptive sensors are in our muscles and joints, and those are only activated through active contractions of muscles and joints. So we have to be doing things actively like pushing, pulling, climbing, chewing. So so that is, I guess, a little foundational stuff to think about. But if you think about all the senses that go into one activity, sometimes when we have a kid come into our session and they're dysregulated, it's really hard to know what is causing the dysregulation initially, unless, you know, you really know that child well, like you talked about the child, Michelle, that you see who, who might be really sensitive to auditory input. You know, you start to spot those patterns. Yes. And I was going to say also, this is why we have to know the patient's past medical history, because if you're working with a child who had chronic ear infections or has taken, um, Aaron multisyllabic word, autoacoustic medications that can impede vestibular development or has a hearing loss, then, you know, what if they've had head trauma or a bleed? Or what if you're working with a child that has cerebral palsy and they can't activate those muscle groups the same as a a peer that did not have those traumas? Like that's, I got to circle back around to, we really have to understand the etiologies of the kids that we're seeing. Okay, sorry, soapbox moment. Yeah, for me. <laughs> but that brings up a good point, which is, you know, I, I know you guys talk about trauma-informed care, and we have a lot of autistic people growing up who have said, you know, therapy was traumatizing for me. I didn't get control over my body. I was moved around. I had a lot of hand-over-hand prompting, things like that. And so you might see, you, you might meet a child and you think, oh, they're sensitive to tactile input. They're sensitive to touch, but it might just be more of a tra- trauma response that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's just so many factors that go into it. And I think the there's a huge tie-in overall with emotional regulation and sensory because a lot of times if a child is emotionally dysregulated, that might manifest in a way that looks like it's a sensory dysregulation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you come in, patient comes in, little guy comes raring into your your clinic. And I imagine that when you see them, the second you lay eyes on them, I talked about like, we talk about Aaron and I, but this is another soapbox first. Therapeutic presence begins the second that child can lay eyes on you. And like, I feel like from that moment, we're assessing like, what's going on? What are we seeing? And where are they? Is that... And like what runs through your mind in that moment? Yeah, absolutely. I I wrote in a recent ASHA article, I think November of 2020 is when it came out about this little girl who was, gosh, how old was she when I started seeing her? Maybe three. And she would just blaze in through the clinic, no waiting in the waiting room for her. She knew her way back. She would pull open all of our heavy doors and she would run back where she would go straight to our clinic director's office who housed the gigantic gallon-sized bottle of hand sanitizer. And she would just pump, 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 pump as many pumps as she could get into her tiny little hand before someone, you know, pulled her away. Then she would run into my office where this was 4.30 p.m., by the way. 
She would devour any leftovers I had from lunch because I just every week forget to clean it up. Take a sip of my coffee, smoothie, whatever's on my desk. So then all of a sudden I'm freaking out. I'm trying to clean that up, put that away, turn back. She's scaling the bookshelf behind me trying to get to our pink kinetic sand, which I would keep at the top of the bookshelf. Okay. And I'm, I say that so clearly because that happened every week. That was not a one-off session. That was the structure <laughs> of how she would come in every week. And Michelle, you said, said something earlier about how when a client comes in dysregulated, all of a sudden you find yourself dysregulated. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because we're empaths. Sorry, that's yeah. I, I claim I claim I'm an empath, and like when when I see them getting dysregulated, then I get dysregulated, and it's a conscientious shift to like no own the session, own the moment, change your vibe. But like, yeah, but for a lot of therapists, we don't recognize that in ourselves, and then all of a sudden we are dysregulated, where our brain is also not thinking at its best, <laughs> right? So how are we supposed to do therapy, and then? child's dysregulated, we're dysregulated, we're in this frantic therapy session where we're trying to engage the kid and get the kid regulated and try to get language and then they leave. And we like, do you ever have a kid leave a session and then you take a breath and you're like, what just happened? Yes. (laughs) And you're you're just thinking, okay, I'm going to do better next week. (laughs) I'm gonna have a plan next week. I'm going to talk to her teacher this week. I'm going to talk to her parents and her babysitter. And we're all going to get on board. And I'm going to come up with the best plan. And I know exactly what she needs. And then all of a sudden, your next client walks through the door. And then you just completely forget about it until the next week they're about to come in. You go, oh, shoot. I never talked to their teachers. I never talked to their parents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we should have to, like, we have our own individual, like, our own individual differences in regards to our sensory system. And so like I have kids that are more, I'm a lower, softer energy. I am very sensitive to touch. So I have a really hard time and I've grown to be better at providing deep pressure for my kiddos that need it because I never felt like they were fully giving me permission because they didn't know that that's what they needed, but I knew that that's what they needed. And so to have like the kids that are I find very different from my sensory um, needs are the kids that take so much more energy out of me, which teaches me a lot. But then you go from one session to another and every kid is so different. And you're just like, it takes a lot out of you to have to shift in that way. Yes, because for this little girl, she comes in high level of arousal. What she needs is a calming source. And for a frantic SLP, just trying to (laughs) do what's best and stressed out in the moment, it's really hard for us to be that source. So we really have to take a minute, gather ourselves and then try to be more calming and provide more calming input. But you described something else, which is really interesting that I see a lot because in my clinic, we have therapists who have all different personalities and some of them are just much more, you know, soft spoken And when they have a kid come in who has a lower level of arousal, I like to say, think Eeyore, you know, it's just a child who is more of a low level of arousal, more passive, and they come in with their calming energy. That's not what that child needs in that moment either. That child needs the therapist to kind of step it up and be this exciting, alerting source for them. Yeah. I have a lot of kids who, because we 
as Michelle and I talked about, like I have a lot of very medically complex children and it was so interesting when I learned from the OTs that I practice with, like how much, because so many of those children sit in chairs all day because they're not ambulatory. And because it's amazing to see what happens when you get some of these kids onto a swing or you give them input. I have one little boy that I treat who's very low arousal, has a lot of neurologic damage from a traumatic incident. And when I provide like lifting him up and spinning him around carefully, because, you know, we talk about when you spin kids, like that keeps going, but like his, the way his energy and his arousal level increase and his eyes light up and he's so much more verbal. It's like, but you don't always think about that with those low arousal kids. Like that was a big shift for me when I learned that. Yes. Because when you see those kids, you think, what a good cooperative kid. He is so sweet. He's not causing me any problems. He's just going to do whatever I want. Like if you ever have a kid come into your session and he's just sitting there, that is a problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that probably means that they're not fully regulated if they're not really communicating a ton and just kind of sitting there just very passive or even if they're moving, but more of like a wandering slow, aimless Mm -hmm. moving, that can be signs of low arousal. So for a kid like that, that's almost one of my favorite things to do is take those kids and just do something really alerting, like whether that is spinning them or like some kind of like tickles or other kind of touch that's alerting. And, you know, even if it's just singing really excited and see what it does to them, because I've seen such incredible shifts in kids just by giving them that input. And, you know, you talk about the medically fragile kids, a little girl that I see is blind and she is, I can't help but think about how much work and energy she's putting into her body because she's, she's young, she's four, she started walking late. She's really still, you know, very unstable. She's learning to walk with a cane and she for a child who's having trouble moving around, they're probably spending a lot of time sitting. You know, I know she does a lot of therapy school, but it's one of those things where I just talked recently to her nanny about alerting activities for her because we got up and we did some yoga positions and we did some acting out different animals moving around. And she was a completely different kid after that. I've got... I've got a co-treat that I do with an, an OT and we tag team, we spend two hours together and we're trading. So one kid we're working on, I'm doing speech therapy, she's doing OT, but like we trade at the end of the hour, but it's us in the same room for those two hours and it's great. And one child tends to be really high arousal and one child tends to be very low arousal. And I have one with Jobert syndrome. I'm hoping I'm saying that. And the other one had um, neonatal abstinence syndrome. But their go-to regulation is the same. And she pulls out a big bucket, like a big silver bin, kind of like a something you'd like whisk a cake batter in, but like giant, and fills it with ice water. I mean, I am frozen solid after like a couple of minutes, but it's amazing to watch how for one child, it alerts them and pulls them up. 
And the other child has literally the opposite effect and brings them down to like a more steady, calm moment. Same task, totally, but it brings them both to like the same, I don't know, it sets the stage for everything else for the next two hours. Yeah. And that is, you know, a great example of how different people can be. But that also brings kind of into the idea that people have different thresholds for sensory input. You know, people have different thresholds for pain tolerance, for example. You know, do you ever meet someone who says they gave birth to all their kids without drugs and it was fine? You know, that's not not horrible. They're superhuman. That's (laughs) not normal. (laughs) And, but that's the thing is, you know, what hurts you doesn't necessarily hurt someone else to the same degree. So that's a big part of sensory input is thinking about how much of that input activates the child. You know, for a kid who's low arousal, how much sound gets him to a place where he's regulated? And then from there, how much more sound gets him to a place where it's too much? You know, so you really have to learn individually with your kids is where is that threshold between what activates them versus what brings them into a state where it's too much for them. And it's unique to every child. And not only is it unique to every child, it could be unique to environments. I mean, I've, I've had patients that I saw in home and then saw in a clinic and it could be the same little one, two totally different presentations. One, I was in their natural environment and one, they came to me and it's a foreign place with different sounds, different smells, different lights. And and that's a completely different experience. And it's kind of like, I feel like there's this breakdown between early intervention and an LEA because predominantly in early intervention, we're in their homes and we describe everything that's going on with our our little guy or a little lady. And then they go to their LEA and they could totally present different because it's such a new environment. And I've seen that like, you know, they're like, oh, well, they didn't perform this on the standardized assessment when we did intake. So when I read the IEP goals, I'm like, no, but you don't understand. They've already mastered that. We can already do that. But it was the impact of that huge shift and change. Just Yeah. I have this little guy that I'm seeing right now and he, I've just been, he's a gestalt language processor. So we've just been diving in how to help him there and training, you know, parents. And I spoke to his his teacher yesterday who was telling me all about, you know, how he's doing in the classroom and it's just completely different kid in the classroom, you know, which is why I think it's so important that we take time to learn how we can help kids across different environments. You know, our job is reaches so far beyond the therapy session and it, we can, Truly, you know, our goal should not just be get kids to do X, Y, Z in our session. It should be how can we improve, you know, how can we help this child live a fulfilling life? And we can do that by collaborating with other professionals. And in my sensory program, it used to be a six-week program, and then we changed it to six months because we wanted to be able to help therapists make these greater changes because these things take time. 
You know, I always say that we spend so much time in our therapy, like in that frantic, what am I going to do and come up with all these big ideas that never get taken care of. And that's because we don't set aside time to work on our therapy. We're just always in our therapy. So in this program, you know, having six months with people where they are setting aside time every week to work on their therapy, not just in their therapy, that's how we're going to make a bigger change in our kids' lives. Okay. I'm sorry. I was busy thinking, how do we get school-based clinicians to have access to feel empowered to implement these strategies in their super brief 15-minute sessions when they're running a 100-person caseload and was chasing that down my head? Because that makes me honestly think that we need to somehow incorporate bare bones for this into even special education classrooms, because if the child's not regulated for language, then they're sure as anything not going to be regulated for learning like common core or how to participate. Oh, I was just going to say, I have so many teachers and special ed teachers in particular reaching out saying, can I take your program? And I have to say, you know, unfortunately, it's really not designed for teachers. I mean, would I love to teach teachers in some capacity? Absolutely. But I'm not a teacher. So it's really hard for me. Like I can't bring teachers into a group coaching call and feel like I know what's best for them in their setting. You know, I really have to get in there and meet them and see them. But there's obviously, you know, a lot of work to be done, like a really big district out here, just um, not Los Angeles, but close by just released this very intensive and I'm sure very expensive behavioral training program for all staff members, thousands. Oh boy. You know, and it's just one of those things where what's scary about implementing sensory strategies and, you know, floor time is that it doesn't look like your typical speech session and people get afraid. I think people worry what's this parent going to think of me if this is what my session looks like? Because can you get, if you use some behavioral compliance-based approach, you can get a kid to do almost anything. Oh, I had an ABA teacher, teacher, whatever they're called, teach a child to say, I have orange cat. And they were like, look, he's doing a four-word utterance. I was like, it's not grammatically correct. He doesn't have a cat, much less an orange cat. So like, congratulations, you've taught a little one to sit at a table and like be cued by an index card. And the parent's like, oh my God, did you hear? He said, I have an orange cat. He had, you know, and then it's like the parents are getting hyped up about this and that mm-hmm. makes us, I think, even more just intimidated because then we think, okay, well, then our sessions where we're on the swing and our my focus is getting him to giggle and laugh and connect with me, you know, yeah. is, it takes a lot of education. And it takes more time. Like, I think that's the other thing with parents is like, I, but, but when they have that moment and they see it, it, I feel like when a when you're able to connect with the parent and you're able to explain to them and they're able to see it and you're able to give them those magic moments, like they get it because they see it and that connection is there. And I know we talk and you talk a lot about certain behavioral strategies that like we were taught to use like teaching children to make eye contact that can be very traumatizing. But when a child actually makes eye contact with you because they're connecting with you, it's like they're looking into your soul. And you're like, 
I like, I get it. And I, and this means so much more, but I mean, I have so many parents, like parents that had speech therapy before me that will say, Oh, well, like you're just, you just play with them the whole time. And you're like, I'm so glad it looks like that because it's a lot of, there's so many other things going on. I can work to explain it to you, but it is a, I mean, I don't have a lesson plan. I have things I want to work on. I have maybe a game that we played last week that I'm trying to expand in sequencing or expand in, in some new ideas or some bringing in some of my ideas. But like when you're in the session and you're doing sensory and you're doing floor time and you're working on all these strategies, like it's exhausting, but it's so joyful. Yeah. And it's, I think, you know, especially when you show parents like what you're aiming for and then they, you're, you are taking the pressure off of them. I think it's a huge relief for parents. I was coaching a parent recently and I said, we were talking about their nighttime routine. And I was like, well, what if we took off all the demands of like reading a book mm-hmm. and answering questions? And I said, what if you spent that 10, 15 minutes before bed, just cuddling with him and singing to him and squeezing him and telling him how much you love him? Like, what would that, yeah. I wonder what that would do for him. Put joy back in the home. That's, I feel like that's missing for so many of our families, just simply being allowed and told that, hey, just enjoy each other. Yeah. And let's be honest, like we all, I think any parent feels that way too. We are all rushing through day-to-day parenthood. Sometimes we don't take the time to just be with our kids. But, you know, I can tell you because I've put my son in therapy here at my office and there is nothing like you think that you go into a session and if you don't come out and tell the parent that your kid did this, this, and this, and he did amazing. And he said these sentences, you think that they're going to judge you or they're going to think you're not a good therapist. But the only thing parents care about is if that therapist loves their kid. Like it does not go, you know, you take your kid to therapy. You don't keep going because they're making progress. You keep going because your kid loves going and you could tell that they have a special relationship. You know, if you want to reach a parent's heart, you love their kid. That's how. And kids deserve to be like in the, I took the TBRI course, which talks about relationship building and trauma. And they say, they're like, every kid deserves to have someone that loves them unconditionally. And more than that, but like a child shouldn't have to earn love. And they also shouldn't have to earn play because that's how they learn and that's how they develop. And that's why they're a kid. Like that's why, and in that book, in the book that I was talking about play, like that's why humans take a lot longer to develop into adults and, and go through this adolescent period and go through their period of being a child, because that's when they're learning about the world and life and their body and how their body works and, and all those sorts of things. And that's just a, something they, they don't, like I said, they just don't, shouldn't have to earn it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about like unconditional love and it's, it's neurology. It all comes back to that, which is when we aren't feeling that loved, we aren't feeling safe, our brain can't do what we need it to do. You know, so it's 
just the science is there, you know, backing it up. Every kid needs supportive, nurturing people in their lives. And I know we took like a turn because we could probably talk to you forever, but I'm kind of going back to more specifically sensory, like what for people listening, like what are some strategies that if they were to go into their session tomorrow that you like they you could implement to really help with kiddos with helping them become more regulated? Yeah. So I you probably heard me talk about this before, Erin. <laughs> but I use, anal- I use this analogy which I wanted which I will explain because I think that Um, the first step in going into a session is understanding why you're doing what you're doing, which helps parents to understand it. And I will definitely share some strategies. But I use this analogy of a staircase. And I like to say that, you know, imagine a child developing language as a staircase. And those bottom level steps are regulation and engagement. And it's not till the middle steps that you reach the language and then the higher steps where you've got the higher level language and cognitive skills. And I like to say that the banister of the staircase represents intrinsic motivation, right? Because like we've talked about, we know we can get kids to do things, even if they're not really intrinsically motivated. But the safest way to get up that staircase is by holding onto the banister. Getting a kid intrinsically motivated is going to get them up that staircase is what is ultimately going to get them up. But we think about, you know, if we go straight into a session and we go straight to working on language what happens when those bottom steps are missing? You know, we can't, we're never going to get up that staircase. That staircase is never going to be stable enough for us to climb up to the top. We have to hit those foundational steps of getting a child regulated and getting a child engaged. And I have actually a visual of this that people can download for free. I, if you go to languagestaircase.com, <laughs> I just put it on there because I, I would talk about it so much. And it's a visual and it can be used as a handout for parents or teachers. But you think about, is this child regulated? If they're not, how are we going to get them there? And, you know, I've, I've hinted at this a little bit throughout our conversation, but we can think of kids. I think at the most basic foundational level is, is this child, does this child have a lower level of arousal or a higher level of arousal? Is this child more like Eeyore, kind of passive, wandering, low energy? Or is this kid Tigger? Is this kid bouncing around, nonstop, on the move, lots of energy? Because the easiest thing for us to do is just come into the session, figure out what level of arousal they are, and then try to bring them back to more of an optimal level by either calming them if they are in their Tigger state or alerting them if they're in their Eeyore state. So, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry, this entire time I thought you were saying Igor, like from Frankenstein. And it just dawned on me that you're saying Eeyore and it just makes so much more sense now in my head. So like huge shift for me. Okay. Now. Okay. Yep. Continue. Sorry. Okay. Next time I'm going to say Winnie the Pooh's Eeyore. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I was like, but Igor does move. Okay. Just roll Michelle roll. Don't overanalyze. It's okay. I'm you cool. Just I'll be quiet. <laughs> but you think about it. You think about like, 
when you go to a sporting event and the team scores and everyone's cheering, everyone's up on their feet, they're excited and you're up on your feet. You don't even know what teams are playing. You don't follow sports, but everyone else excited makes you excited to be there. You know, it's the same thing with how our energy is so contagious. So when we have a kid come in who's high level of arousal, like this little girl, you know, I was mentioning earlier who would scale my bookshelf. I get a high level of arousal and then she gets an even higher level of arousal because she's catching on to my high energy and then it's just up, up, up and then we're both completely dysregulated. And the same can happen with low arousal. You know, if a kid comes in and is really calm, you might feel like, oh oh my gosh, finally a time in my day. This kid is calm. We're just going to chill together. It's going to be so nice. But in reality, we really need to give that child more alerting input to get them to a more optimal state of learning. So, you know, obviously, like we've talked about, every kid is is very different, but there are generally some things that we can do to either get give kids alerting input or calming input. So some of those things would involve the whether the the input or activity is fast or slow. So, you know, something that's going to be slower will be more calming versus something that's faster will be more alerting. You can think of that in so many different contexts. Like if you're thinking about it in terms of movement, if you, I always say one of my favorite sensory pieces of equipment is my rolling office chair because everyone worries that they don't have a gym, but it's, but do you have an office chair with wheels? Because that is the perfect place to start. So if you want to do something calming, you know, moving them front to back, even in an office chair really slowly versus like driving them all around like a car around the room or spinning them is going to be more alerting. So anything softer in terms of level of intensity, if you're speaking, just speaking softly versus speaking more loudly or quickly will be more alerting. And I always say that this can start from the very first second a kid comes in. A lot of us sing hello songs, for example. And just know that right when a kid comes in, and that kind of leads us back to what we were talking about initially, Michelle, that you said, like, when a kid comes in, what do you do? The first thing I do is figure out what state of arousal they're in. And if they're in a high state of arousal, I'm going to sing hello and provide them calming input versus if a kid is in a lower level of arousal. Did I just say that? (laughs) We're just rolling that, baby. (laughs) I did that at ASHA. I don't know if you remember that, Erin, but I was talking and then all of a sudden I couldn't remember if I'd said high or low and I got really confused. Um, but if a kid is really high level of arousal, do a calming hello. If they're low level of arousal, do an alerting hello. And that might look like for that little girl, what I would do when she would come in really high level of arousal is I would, she would sit on my lap like a spider sit, which I know not every work setting can do that. <laughs> but she would come sit on me, we would give her a big hug, and we would just rock really slowly back and forth and just sing hello really softly. Hello, you know, and that really helped. It's it's co-regulation. Her getting calm helped me to be calm too. And it was just a way to start the session off with like a nice calming activity. 
um, versus think, if a kid yeah. no, go ahead. comes in higher level of arousal, you know, um, maybe they're sitting there and you're like, oh, well, they're sitting, they're ready, but really they have a low level of arousal. That's when my favorite move is spaghetti arms. Do you guys know that? Mm-hmm. You, grab, you hold their hands and wiggle them. And kids think that's so funny. Um, so if they like that kind of input, giving them spaghetti arms, maybe giving them tickles when you're singing. And every time you say their name, you give them tickles. Um, maybe you're singing hello on a swing or in the office chair and you're spinning while singing hello. You know, so I think that is like the easiest way to just get started tomorrow. And I feel like as SLPs, we're taught to be up high all the time. Like I hear in the, you know, a lot of it, we're like, and this is, again, we can't, we're not, we don't have any time to go into like analytic versus just all language learners, but we're taught to very much be like, open the door, sit down. And we're like all up here. And, but it's, but it's amazing. Um, one of the OTs I work with, I remember one day I watched him with a patient he was working with and we started cleaning up and he was singing at like maybe this level and this speed. And then as we got from where we cleaned up all the way to the door, he like slowed the song and brought his voice down. And I had never like you exactly what you were describing, but like the way that that child went from this more, active play to like walking to the door, putting his shoes on and being ready to leave. I was like, that was magic. And I need to learn how to do that. But it's so amazing how like you can take one activity, but do different things with it dependent on like the state that they're in or where we're trying to get them to go, I guess. Yeah. And it's very, you know, counterintuitive, which is what makes it hard. And exactly what you're describing. It's in our jobs, we're kind of expected to be these really loud, energetic people to entertain these little ones when in reality, sometimes that's not what they need. But yeah, one of my favorite things to do, and I've done this maybe in some past Instagram reels, but show the same activity, but in a calming versus an alerting way. Because people are always, you know, they'll post on Facebook or something. What's a good calming activity what's a good alerting activity and I'm like well it doesn't really matter the activity not so much it's how we do it you know in a lot of ways my mentor the um, OT that founded the clinic that I worked at she was like just remember get them grounded and that literally means getting to the ground. And I was like, that makes so much sense. So when we're high arousal, all of a sudden, everybody in the room is like crawling on the floor, sitting on the floor, doing things slow and going down. But like, I thought it was perfect that she was like, let me break this down for the SLP in the room, literally ground them. And I'm like, oh, punishment, time out on the wall. But no, I mean, I, I, I just, but yes. <laughs> Yeah, I love that because that just has the connotation too of like settling down and calming. And I think maybe just from yoga (laughs) gave it that. Yeah. Okay. I hate being the timekeeper, but like I know we are like wicked over. So even with um, some tweaking to the edits behind the scene, folks, because you know that's happening. Do you have any final thoughts before you tell us where everybody can find you? I think that. I don't want to sound cliche. Okay. We love a cliche. But, you know, there's just, our job is so much greater than just these 30 minute hour long sessions a week. And 
what we're hearing from the autistic community is that we're getting it wrong. We're not we're not listening to autistic people and what they've year, learned from years of therapy and experience. And I think the more we listen, the more we are going to better serve our kids, you know? So we know that sensory regulation is a huge part of the autistic experience. We know that the vast majority of autistic people say that they have sensory differences and, and, you know, we don't want to invalidate that. We want to instead, as SLPs, we have this job where we can make this connection between sensory and self-advocacy. You know, we teach them communication. We could help kids learn what feels good, what doesn't feel good, and then how to advocate for themselves and actually communicate that. So I think it's, you know, this is such a bigger picture type of role that we play in our sessions. See, we love cliche. That's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, can you tell folks where to find you? Yes. I am on Instagram, jessieginsberg.slp. And if you just go to sensorySLP.com, that's where I've got a lot of information, including information on our sensory certificate for SLPs. And then we also have a Facebook group called Sensory SLPs, which is where people get together to collaborate on how they can start using sensory strategies in their sessions. Erin, I'm going to let you close her out, lady, because we are here today because of you and your joy. So go for it. I I think she ended it perfectly. I don't know how I can beat that. (laughs) But um, no, we're grateful to have you. I definitely... This like last year, I feel like, I mean, I've only been a speech therapist for three years, almost four. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty new in the field, but I've, I think through a lot of the advocacy that you've been doing, I've been able to find other resources as well. And I think it's just, like you said, really important to amplify autistic voices, to look inward, to find the joy and you've brought us a lot of joy. So. We're glad that you were here today. Thank you so much. And congrats to you guys on the success of the podcast and just all the incredible things that you're doing. That's that's a whole lot of God and we're just a good conduit. Bless one of that. So thank you. This is where I get emotional and awkward and I'm just going to end. So hi, everybody. Tune in next week. <laughs> Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. 
Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.